Hello there and welcome to episode 15 of Nothing Else Mattress, the music podcast that set out to try and establish what we think are the 100 greatest albums um, ever made. To do that, we're using the latest Rolling Stones list from 2020 as a basis, reviewing the 100 on that, voting some in and out, and then when we've got some gaps left, we're going to fill them through nominations from the panel and from our guests and Twitter. Uh, we've done 14 episodes uh, so far, uh, 70 reviewed, and I think we've got 45 voted in so far, so about 64%, which tells you we've got 55 left to fill, so I've um, got a bit to go yet. Five, five more to review tonight. Um, tonight's panel is, uh, is quality over quantity. Uh, we have, uh, first of all, we have John Welsh with us tonight. Hi, John. Hello, Brian. Good evening. You good? How you doing, mate? Okay. Yeah, very well. Thank you. Good man. Good to see you again. And uh, you know, we love our guests. And um, tonight we have uh, a guest and our guest is the founder of the independent not-for-profit record label based in Glasgow. Last night from Glasgow and more importantly, a Wilco superfan, Ian Smith. Right, good bro. evening, Ian. Hey, how you doing, Brian? I'm very good, mate. Thanks again for coming good. on. Really appreciate Pleasure. it. Cool. So we've got five to go to. Just before we start that, um, John, I know you didn't make the last one. Um, and I'm not blaming you for not being on, but we actually voted all five of the um, the albums on the list, the last one, which is the first time yeah, we've done Yeah, it's the first that. time, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So just as ever, giving you a chance, if you want to veto any of those that we voted on. No. No. We even voted a jazz no. album on, which uh, I know. Yeah. is unusual. So. Nothing wrong with that. Not at all, mate, Absolutely. but we've had, we've had some issues with, with jazz, to be fair, so... Um, but we got there. So yeah, really good last last time. So we'll see how we do tonight. Cool. So the first one we have on the list at number 30 on the Rolling Stone uh, <clears> list <throat> is Jimi Hendrix, Are You Experienced? So I'll just give you a quick summary of the Rolling Stones justification. Okay. Um, this is what Britain sounded like in late 66 and early 67. A blaze with rainbow blues, orchestral guitar feedback and cosmic possibility. Jimi Hendrix's incendiary guitar was historic in itself. Luminescent sum of his chitlin circuit labours with Little Richard and the Isley Brothers and his melodic exploitation of Amp Howe. But it was the pictorial heat of songs like Manic Depression and The Wind Cries Mary that established the transcendent promise of psychedelia. Backed by drummer Mitch Mitchell and bassist Noel Redding, the guitarist made soul music for inner space. It's a collection of free feeling and imagination, he said of the album. Imagination is very important. Widely assumed to be about an acid trip, Purple Haze had nothing to do with drugs, Hendrix insisted. It was all about a dream I had that I was walking under the sea. So that was a summary from the Rolling Stone. It was released on the 12th of May, uh, 1967. And it was his debut album, obviously. Uh, we've had two more Hendrix albums on the list so far, uh, Electric Ladyland and uh, Access Boulder's Love, which we voted both on. So this is the third one. Okay, so I guess before we start, uh, John's going to lead us away here, but I guess quick question is, there's a bit of debate about which album we're going to review stroke signing it off because the UK version is a bit different to the US version and the Rolling Stone list is a little bit ambiguous about which one they're reviewing. They, they call out Purple Haze and stuff there. So so what do you want to do? John, you're leading off, mate. So which, which album are you reviewing? Well, let's just review both. Okay, that's fine. And then we can we can make a call at the end of it. So, oh, yours? I, I think, yeah, okay. So so this is Hendrix's first album, and I, I think I've read quite a bit over the years about Hendrix, and I, I really love the story of Hendrix. You know, he, he starts off and ends up in the army, and 
doesn't really cut it there and, you know, ends up getting discharged. And he becomes a bit of a gun for hire, you know, with various musicians and, you know, kind of plodding along. But you look at the list of people he's played with, you know, from Wilson Pickett, Sam Cooke, Jackie Wilson, uh, you know, guys of that calibre, Little Richard, Arthur Lee, um, absolutely incredible. And then I think, you know, he then moves to London. It's Chas Chandler from the Animals, uh, who's Animals Manager, you know, looked at him and thought, yeah, we can, we can set something up here. So it's it's quite interesting that he actually had to cross the pond, so to speak, to actually begin to make it in music. And I think, you know, you, you guys like Andrew, Lou Goldman and Seymour Steen had actually knocked him back, had the opportunity to, you know, potentially sign this guy and... Um, didn't think it was it was worth the chance. So, you know, the move to London is quite interesting. I think, you know, obviously this is this is the first album. Um, and it starts off Foxy Lady, I think, you know, from the UK version. I, I don't know if that's the first track on the, the US version, but you still listen to that. Today. It still sounds incredibly fresh to me, which, you know, really... Stands teams, we get albums that we like, and you know, you might go and revisit something that's come out for 20 30 years ago, and you can tell it's really dated. But to me, Foxy Lady really has still got that freshness about it. And I kind of think about it and think, what else was there that sounded like this at the time? And there may well have been, but I'm I'm struggling to, to think of anything, uh, you know. that that was like Hendrix, you know, and I, I think as well that there's a bit of an aura probably because he died so young, right? Um, and therefore his career is buttonholed into three or four years, which is an incredibly short period of time. Um, and you kind of think, well, is the aura greater than the music? But you, you look at who was, who was following, you know, who was following him at the time. You know, the, the Beatles were going to watch him live. The Stones were going to watch him live. You know, I think Clapton, all these guys, you know, they were like, who is this? You know, what a talent this guy is. So so you look at that and you think, well, that, that's kind of fair enough. Um, and don't get me wrong, I, th- I think there are some duffers, shall we say, on the album. Um, Manic Depression, I think. It's it's a bit wank, wanky, quite frankly. It's overindulgent um, guitar nonsense uh, at, at times, and, you know. And I, I kind of listen to that, and I think you know, you fast forward fifteen years, and you've got all these redneck American bands and uh, heavy metalists, and they're, they're probably looking at that going, "This is the way to go." Um, but he done it with a certain panache, and I think you know, you've got. Real blues songs in there like Red House, um, which I think's you know fantastic. Um, I, I just think it's a really good album. Uh, you know, is it better than I think we've, we've reviewed another one, haven't we? Review three, Brian. John. Yeah, three, um, have we? Right, okay, done, I, I missed um, one of them on. I just bold of love and Electric Ladyland. Um, yeah. I think with one of them we wavered about. I think Electric Ladyland we put in. I think Axis was a bit of disagreement on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it went in. Um, but yeah, this was his, obviously, his, as you say, his breakthrough one. Uh, and it mm-hmm. came at that psychedelia point, didn't it, where 
I suppose time is everything that you know, especially London appear to be ready for. That's right. And I think like I think um, you know, just on that point, you know, the third stone from the sun, that is psychedelia uh, in a nutshell, really. I, I think, you know, it's fantastic. It's got distortion in it, it's got, you know, a bit of spoken word vocal. Um, but the funny thing is, you know, and you mentioned at the start, Purple Haze isn't in there. Yeah. Or, or Hey Joe. Hey Joe, isn't it? The Winter yeah. Dies, Mary. Yeah, yeah, Hey Joe. Yeah, and you can think. So they're on the American version. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I'm, you know, you kind of think, well, does that lessen the UK version? 100% it does, because these are absolute classics. But does the album still stand out? You know, I, I think it does. I, th- I think for, you know, at that point in time, as I say, I don't think... I'm not sure if there's MDL else doing anything like this. And, you know, he's a bit of a trailblazer. So mm-hmm. I, I'm very much a fan of this. Okay. So wait, it comes out in May 67, which is um, <clears throat> sort of fairly relevant because you've touched on some of the connections in the music scene at the time. Um, one of the main ones being the Beatles. So um, not only are they sort of championing them, but um, they're also kind of, I guess, at their peak or towards their peak commercially. Because Sandra Pepper, I think, comes out two weeks after. His album well, just, just on that came out after, um, and two days after it was released, Hendrix was playing a gig and he, he, he basically did uh, Sergeant Pe- the Sergeant Pepper song on stage, which was and, and the Beatles were actually in attendance, and they're, yeah. they're just like, What the fuck? This guy's just on a different, different planet, you know. I think the story was he said if the Beatles won't play live, I I'll play their songs or something to that mm. effect. So, um, yeah. cool, um, Ian. So tell us about Hendrix. First of all, are you a fan? No, you're not. Okay, that's not. a good start. I mean, uh, in the same way, I'm not a fan of Miles Davis, or I'm not a fan of John Coltrane. I mean, I can admire it. I can sit there and 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 appreciate the virtuosity of it, uh, but. I don't find myself ever really being inclined to listen to it. Okay. You know, I push, I'd sit there and listen to Wing, which is a beautiful song. But to me, it's uh, it's musicianship over melody. It's performance over song structure. It's everything that I don't go for. You know, my so my taste in music stems from, you know, classically structured songs and how they hang together, and Hendrix was the complete antithesis of this. Uh, no doubt seeing him live would have been an incredible mm. experience, and I imagine that those people who were championing him and and he was, you know, a huge inspiration to, it would have been that performatory element of it. But I've got to struggle. I mean, I struggle with so much of this Rolling Stones list, uh, about 90% of it, I think. <laughs> uh, but yeah, things yeah. like suggesting that this album is more important than the 70 that came before. I wouldn't have it being more important than Electric Ladyland, which is, I think, a more complete niche. Uh, so don't get me wrong, I'm not disrespectful of him. I'm not somebody who thinks we should uh, sully his name. But in the two and a half, three thousand vinyl records I have, I possess no Jimi Hendrix records. Okay, that's interesting. Tell you what I think of Hendrix. We've had this chat before where, you know, we've probably been quite respectful of 
the impact that <clears throat> an album's had. Um, but then with the chat about have you actually owned a copy at any point? And then I think, do you remember Loveless? I think, John, My Bloody Valentine. Yes. About that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it was the only one that voted for that, wasn't it? Well, we, we all liked it. Well, we all liked it, but we, uh, most of us never owned a coffee, so it was that kind of the same thing again about... Mm, I, I don't think everybody liked it. I, I think there was some um, <laughs> absolute shredding going on by Mr Patterson. Yeah, well, he can't defend himself tonight. <clears throat> okay, so I think it's a fair point. I think he, he definitely had... A, so time is everything, isn't it? So I suppose he had his moment in the sun, literally in 67, psychedelia's landed, Beatles are backing him. Um and he, he couldn't he couldn't kick a ball, he couldn't cross the road in America, you know. So, um, so I suppose it was it was kind of shut bus really in London. Interestingly, I think after he released this album, he, he goes back to America, doesn't he? And uh, for a bit, so he's still touring yeah. with the Monkees yeah. in America, um, which I guess would be quite an interesting night to to kind of tap into. So he moves on quite quickly, and I guess it kind of becomes commercially quite successful. The album doesn't get. To number one in the UK, but it's number two, which fair effort for him, really, considering where he came from. Um, and the Beatles kept him off because they were number one for Yonks with Sergeant Pepper. So, um, yeah, so it's kind of done well all around, really. Um, and I guess it's just really whether we think, you know, on balance, the the the, the songs plus what he is, what he is, and what he stands for is more important than whether the actual you know, the, the kind of history, if you want, is positive enough. So the guys um, who aren't on tonight were all, you'd be pleased to know, Ian, were all yeses. Really? Yeah, they were Chris Thompson, George, uh, Dixon Telfer, Skin, and uh, Martin Metcalf. All voted That's this perfect. one as a yes. So, um, and we do give them a vote if, they, if they've got the time to vote in. So, um, so on that basis then, uh, we can kind of add to that. The only other thing I was going to mention was, you, you know, I think that the, the way the albums are played out, there are some sort of really nice kind of references in there. So I know that, for example, MC5 are, are sort of fairly big influence on a couple of the songs for him. So, albeit he was a bit kind of, you're right, a bit, I don't know, heavy rocky, Ian, you know, you know, a bit kind of all over the place. But some of what he was learning from and leaning into was fairly relevant at the time. So, um, yeah, I don't doubt. You know, these things are relevant, but I think I think whenever you're going to compile a list, that list is open to objective and subjective review. And I'll say more of this when I come on to the next album. But okay. I can think of 500 records better than this, which means this can't be in the top 100. Okay, well, that's, that's why you're on, mate. So, yeah. um, so I've said the other guys are pretty much carrying it, I think. Um, <coughs> Ian, you sound like a mate. Skinner. He's deaf. He knows nothing about me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let Graham come back to you on that one. Um, so I'm putting you, you down as a maybe. I'm putting you down as a maybe, Ian, for that. Yeah, uh, uh-huh. I think it probably <laughs> deserves its place in the top 500 albums. I don't think it's a top 100 album. Okay, no, no bother, John. Yeah, I think it does deserve its place. I think it's um, a bit of a game changer when it came out. So for lo- that reason and what I've already stated. I'm voting it in. And okay, just mate. to mention, you just mentioned the, mon- the monkeys there. Yeah. Just to go off on a bit of a, a sidetrack, um, Mickey DeLenz is releasing an EP in a few weeks' time of REM songs, REM yeah. covers. He's doing. Ah, okay. If you look, at, look out for that. Ian, you'll be all over that, mate. Hands of God. 
I love God. Now, yep. give me every monkey's album in the top hundred without a without a heartbeat. Well, there, there's an interesting chat because they've got nothing on the list yet. So yeah, that's scandalous. We, we've we've got opportunities to fill some of those um, as we get down the line. I, I would actually put this one on, and I genuinely am a particularly big Hendrix fan. I think I voted against the other two, yeah. but I do think this one has a real relevance to what was going on, and I guess some of what happened. I don't particularly like a lot of what happened after that. That kind of heavy blue stuff, but um, I guess it did create a whole kind yeah. of and stuff. So, I'm not um, going to object too much. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. We'll be here all night, mate. Um, Twitter, where, what would we say? Twitter, uh, Twitter uh, but fans, 85%, yes. Um, George has always got a, an issue with our, our Twitter friends, but um, they've carried it as well. Okay, so Hendrix is in, which is good. Uh, next one uh, is a, that lesser known band from Liverpool uh, called The Beatles. With the Beatles slash um, the White Album. So Rolling Stone said um, they wrote the songs while on retreat with the Maharishi and Mahesh Yogi in India, taking a break from the celebrity grind. As John Lennon later said, we sat in the mountains eating lousy veg food and we wrote all these great songs. They came back with more great tunes than they could release. Lennon pursued his hard-edged vision and the cynical wit of sexy Sadie and happiness as a warm gun, as well as the childlike yearning of Julia and Dear Prudence. Paul McCartney's playful pop energy came through in Martha My Dear and his inversion of Chuck Berry's American values back in the USSR. Harrison's spiritual yearning led him to Long 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 and While My Guitar Gentle Weeps, featuring a guest guitar solo from Eric Clapton. Even Ringo Starr contributes his first original, The Country Tinge Don't Pass Me By. The Beatles tried a little of everything and all their adventures paid off, according to Rolling Stone. So that's uh, The Beatles slash white album um was number 29 on the list released 22nd of november 68 and it's the second one we've reviewed we reviewed robert soul i think on the last episode and voted in mr smith take us away okay so let's just start with the simple statement of fact that if we are going to assess the greatest albums in contemporary music history and beatles aren't sitting one two, three, and four in that list, the person compiling the list is a fucking idiot. Okay? Okay. I'm willing to concede that Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys is a good shout for five, and then we can start discussing the rest of the Beatles, along with Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Van Morrison, and anything post-1980 can take... Sorry, what? Van Morrison? Absolutely. 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 Van Morrison. I think, I think you said Rush there, John, as well. Yeah, I did. I fucking did, didn't I did, say I Rush. Right, okay. Fucking Rush and Van Morrison. I'm done. <laughs> but, uh, but in all seriousness, uh, it's a, it's laughable to me that the Beatles White Album is sitting anywhere other than top three records ever recorded by anyone, ever. Mm-hmm. It's not the best Beatles album, that's Abbey Road, which Rose have got in the right position for Beatles albums, but okay. the wrong position for albums. But it's... Anyone listening to it has, has got to see the depth of craft, depth of ability, melody, intelligence, uh, imagination. It's from start to finish a mesmerizing work. Contains some of the most beautiful songs ever written. And I think Julia Blackbird, heartbreaking ballad of the objections and a lot of people who are not Beatles fans slag off McCartney and throw up what they consider to be throwaway songs. I reckon I could spend an hour talking about why Rocky Raccoon is a masterpiece. 
And I think if Noel Coward had written that or Hoagie Carmichael had written that for a musical, people would be extolling the virtues of the brilliance of the melody and the brilliance of the lyric. Uh I don't know what else you can. What else needs to be said about it? It opens with "Back in the USSR." If you can think of a better opening track to an album, I'll doff my cap. Uh, it's a band at the peak of their powers, not being afraid to be creative. Uh, I would say it's a much greater success than the album. I'll compare it to, but I could call it the Beatles' Sandinista because they don't do anything, but they, they let everything in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the closing kind of revolution of living minutes at the end, which is a struggle to replicate that since. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an, uh, a start to finish Stonewall masterpiece, and the 28 records above it in the list, only two of them are correct, and they're the other two Beatles albums above it. <laughs> We should have got you on. We should have got you on seventy albums ago, Ian. It'd have been, it'd have been a lot easier, wouldn't well, it? Well, I mean, he's, I've seen this earlier, Julia. I was talking to Julia. The list is to, to create diversity, but if you were to say to me, "Tell me the twenty best episodes of television ever," I would say the first twenty episodes of The Wire, and then we'll talk about something else, because demonstrably every one of those is better than the best of something else. And I would say the same is true of the Beatles. If you can listen to the White Album next to the Wu-Tang Clan and tell me the Wu-Tang Clan album's better, then God, good good on you, because it isn't. Okay, it so... Isn't. Okay, so I, I'm a self-confessed Beatles fan, right? I love the Beatles, right? However, in the, in the spirit of of challenging to make sure we, we sign things on or off um, through yeah. healthy debate. So this is a 30 track album, 92 minutes long. Yeah. And it is different, of course, because of that. And it's a double album and that was unusual pretty much at the time. And, you know, all the light and shade and all the things that you talk about. But there is a counterpoint that suggests that, that there's sort of the padding, if you want, there's too much diversity. There's that it could have done with shaving, you know, a 16-track single album would have been the Abbey Road 2 or, you know, whatever you want to call that. So do, do you not buy into any of that at all? No, because Abbey Road is, is already the shaving of the White Album. If you've heard the Escher demos, they'd already yeah. written most of Abbey Road during the White Album sessions. So Polythene Pam, Mean Mr. Mustard, <laughs> even through the bathroom window. What's the... What, the brilliance of the White Album is it's the one album where you actually get to hear them say, to hell with it, we're doing everything. And if you've sat and watched Get Back, the people who don't like the Beatles say, Christ, it's 15 hours of watching the Beatles. And you're like, yeah, could you make it 30 hours, please? I can watch this for the rest of my life. So there's, there's an element of hearing the, the true brilliance in everything they do and I don't think people, I'm not suggesting this of anyone we're talking to just now, but people listen to Beatles songs and they hear simplicity, they hear obvious melody, and what they absolutely do not understand is that McCartney in particular was such an obsessive studier of chords and of recording that they would spend hours searching for the perfect melody that would create the simplicity that makes it sound like 
they just threw it out in two minutes. Yeah. That's a genius that no one else in the world of music has ever had. I hold McCartney to be singly the most important composer the world's ever seen. You can take every classical composer and have him stand behind McCartney and every great jazz composer can stand behind them because none of them can do what he can do, which is turn the most complex and difficult job into the world and turn... And I think the White Album is a great... And it's not just McCartney, because Lennon's at it and Harrison's throwing in classics and he... Even as you say, Star comes up with an actual song for it. <laughs> but it's an opportunity to hear the noodling. And what's beautiful about that is to go, ah, so that was a throwaway Beatles song. So what would you drop off? You might drop Piggies off it. Yeah, I'm willing to accept that. There's not a McCartney song I dropped from it. I think they're all standouts. Wild Tony Pie? Yeah. Okay. Cool. And would you and my last question then, would you add Hey Jude? Uh, it was recorded pretty much at the same time, released slightly just before the album. Yeah, but that's you know. true of so many of their of their stuff. I mean, look at all the singles they released that were never on albums. Sure, so many Beatles songs that you're like, oh, that'll be on. No, it's not on. Or that should be on Revolver. It's not on Revolver. That should be on Help. That should be on Rubber Soul. So yeah, I but I wouldn't but change if, a thing. But if you're in for a penny, so if you're thirty tracks, you might as well have thirty-one, right? Yeah, oh, Christ. I think the actual yeah, form part of the whole album. I'll take I'll take the quadruple super deluxe reboot. <laughs> I mean, and I'll I'll listen to that whilst you're talking about albums twenty seven and twenty eight <laughs> and twenty six because they're wrong. Uh, they're not better than the white album. Yeah, well, you, you know the pub the public jumped on that, didn't they? I think for a double album, it sold massively. <clears throat> Some of that's cause of the Beatles, but you know, I, I can imagine price points and stuff would have been fairly high at the time for. For buying a double album and it still was you know 24 times platinum over the 60s and 70s so yeah it's, it's, it's a beautiful can... artifact if we're talking about records mm -hmm. uh, i mean i was going to get up and grab my mono copy or my box set copy or my stereo copy but the mono mm -hmm. copy top opens so it's a double album and the records come out the top yeah which is really beautiful it came with four prints a poster i mean everything right. about it was just oh this is this is a thing Okay. Uh, great. The, the crit just before John comes in, the, the critics at the time preferred Beggar's Banquet to the yeah, White sure Album. They did. Yeah, they're wrong. Uh, just, just interesting because obviously Stones had always generally been in the shadow of the Beatles per se. You, you know, albeit they were doing very well for themselves. Yeah, but, I, th um, I think that's in, in every, but at every generational point, there will be a critical argument about the merits of a band, and then time will pass and people will. Refer upon it. Uh, I'm not wishing to get sidetracked into a kind of debate about Britpop, but 30 years ago, people were arguing who was better, Blur or Oasis, mm -hmm. and I think it's been convincingly proven in the last 20 years that Auburn was 10 times the songwriter Noel Gallagher ever was. But at the time, it seemed that Gallagher had the, the golden ticket, and I'm sure when Beggar's Banquet came out, which I don't think is as good an album as Let It Bleed, but mm -hmm. it's great, and it's not as good as album as Sticky Fingers or Exile on Main Street, but mm -hmm. it's the start of that kind of mm -hmm. really golden period of the where in Mystery Tour, Peppers, White Album, or, or the Opus Abbey Road, which is just a sensation. Okay, and I could argue Javis Copper usurps um, Auburn and uh, Gallica. I'd have that argument with you, and I'd, 
I, I would die on the Auburn Hill. <laughs> I think the new Auburn wins it hands down. John, come in and help me, mate. So I think um, Ian's, Ian appears to be supportive of the nomination. So Oh, no, it definitely shouldn't be there. It's a piece of shit. <laughs> it's Jarvis's birthday today, isn't it? 60, yeah. 60 today, yeah. And yeah. Um, Damon and I are cousins. Ah, go on well, then. We're not really, we're well, not really, but um, he did sign me into King Tut's for one of their first gigs in Scotland that was sold out um, when they'd released the She's So High single. And I went up thinking, well, nobody knows this band. I'll get in no problem. It was sold out. But Damon said, I'll get you in. You're my Scottish cousin. And came back and signed Men in the Guest List, which was very good. Fantastic. So there we go. Anyway, um, Coming back to the Beatles, and I agree um, mainly with what Ian's saying. He, you know, he talked about simplicity, and, and following up, and I was, I was writing a couple of notes about this. Um, there's so many songs, and that's what I've written next to simplicity. But simplicity is a fucking hard thing to pull off. You know, songs like I Will, Julia, but Ian's right, you know, to, to find that that point and get it right is you know it's there's no many can pull that off so um i think you know it's, it's a double album right and um you'll know brian that we i often talk about this on this uh particular call that you know i always look at how long the album lasts and that, that you know there's a certain window for me for an album length um, you know, and, and it's generally that sort of 40 to 50 minutes. This is kind of double that, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's a double album. But that's okay as long as you can, as long as it stacks up. And this one does. I think there are, are some duffers on there. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll probably uh, annoy Ian here slightly, but, I, you know, I'm not yeah, a fan then. of, you know, you mentioned Piggies. I'm, I'm not a fan of that. Rocky Raccoon doesn't do it for me, oh, I love Rocky Raccoon. I, I'm, I'm not a fan of Blackbird, right? So they they don't do it for me. But the the point with this album is there's always something coming up mm. that gets your interest, that ticks the box. So you know, for a couple of minutes, two or three minutes, yeah, it's not a song I really get or I like, but I know something something better's coming along. And you know the next song or, or the song after, and that you know you get thirty songs in there, and uh, you know most double albums these days you're probably talking 15, 16 songs at times. You know four four songs, four or five songs maybe on each side. This is thirty songs. It's that's a hell of a lot to pull off. So um, I think there's a lot going on. There's a bit of indulgence. Um, it's quite interesting as well that you know of those 30 songs only the, the four Beatles only appear together in 16 of them mm -hmm. which is just over half um, you know I, th I, thought, I thought it was quite quite interesting I think the dynamic as well was a lot going on with that album I think you know it's, it, it's, it's possibly the beginning of the band imploding as well so you know there's a lot of fractious relationships going on and like say, you know, I think Yoko Ono been there quite a lot as well, which hadn't really happened before. So he pissed people off, Ringo leaving for a period of time, all of that kind of stuff. By the way, 
see Ringo's song in it, the kind of country and western one. I love that. I think that is a fantastic song. Um, it's the it's the band's you know, favourite song on the album. Is it really? It is. Really, yeah. didn't know that. Um, you know, you mentioned even like say Honey Pie. You know, you've got that kind of vaudeville esque mm. music hall kind of theme. Love that as well. So there, there, there's quite a bit of variety on. I think too much going on. I, I don't buy into that. I, I like bands that that will, you know, they don't stick to the same theme album after album. Um, that's boring. You know, yep. Go and do something different. You know, and you know, not one band that kind of springs to mind. I'm, I'm you know, I'm not clearly not. Um, put them in the same category as, as the Beatles. But the jam did that. You know, they, they changed a little bit, uh, you know, not necessarily for the album, the album, but as as they went through, well, they're getting, you know, purely different things. Um, you get the four Beatles here, you know, they've, they've went to India, they're, you know, getting different influences and, you know, they're looking for, like, what else can, can I do as a musician? What else can I get into? Where are my influences coming from? And that really comes out and shines in this album for me. Um and it's it is markedly different from Sergeant Pepper mm. as well, um, which I think that came out the year before, hadn't it? Yeah, about, about eighteen it? months. Yeah. yeah, and you get you had <clears> the <throat> magical, yeah. magical mystery tour kind of in between. Yeah. Well, in, in between, yeah, yeah. So I, I think you know they've they've really moved in a different way. Um, there's lots of styles going on here. Um, there's something at play that they, when you go. No, uh, I, I just really love it, is what I was going to say. So, yeah, on you go in. I was just going to say that if we're talking about, I mean, there's two things I would pick up on. We're talking about the Hendrix album and the significance of it as a work. And I struggle to think of a more resonant song than Blackbird as a, as, a, as a stereotypical anthem for the times that America was going through at that point. Christ, Blackbird's it. What a mm. incredibly moving, touching epitaph to all the troubles. But that's not really where I was going to go with this. My real point is, I don't think it's a band expanding and trying things. It's a band rudderless, because Epstein's mm. dead. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. That's, everything about the Beatles had been managed <laughs> and controlled. We were sitting today discussing in, in the pub, as we, not the pub, just discussing as we often do, uh, the kind of process of bands and how they function and the the incapacity often for bands to trust someone to lead their career. And Epstein had been there for the Beatles from the get-go, and when Epstein died, McCartney lost his mentor, Lennon lost somebody he trusted, Harrison and Starr both lost somebody they looked up to, and what you see, I think, is, is in the Beatles is everyone jockeying for position in the White Album. Mm -hmm. And then by the time Abbey Road comes along and Let It Be comes along, McCartney's gone, well, I'm driving this bus. Mm -hmm. uh, probably rightly so. But to, to me, it might come across almost as a self-indulgent, let's try this. I think actually what it is, is no one's told us no. There's no one sitting there going, oh, that's pish, get rid of that, don't do that, go record a simple album. And also, you know, Lennon's discovered heroin. He's buggering off to get high out his tits all the time. So he's leaving the band to, to fragment. And this great suggestion that McCartney was the person that broke up the Beatles. He was the one playing <clears throat> life trying to keep the band together. Yeah. Uh, so I find it quite a sad album. And 
I think it's an inspiring record. It's clearly a band on the collapse. And then Abbey Road's the big shit. Let's pull it back together and try and fix it all one more time. So it's just part of that incredible journey. And coming in the back of Mystery Tour and Sergeant Peppers, which were so cohesive, and then Rubber Soul and Revolver that were so cohesive as units. It's quite bizarre. It feels something so free-flowing and almost jazz-like in its structure because there's no rules to it. Mm. Yeah, I'd agree with all that. I don't want to add to your chat. So I, I, I think it's an amazing album. Uh, played Devil, Devil's Advocate on the length of it and one or two fillers. I might still take you on in the odd McCartney song, but um, um, I do think it's an amazing record. I did, talking about could you have added more songs on I did read that they did 102 takes of Not Guilty, you know, the Harrison track, yeah. uh, and then chose not to put it on, um, which, again, is probably a good call. I think it came out later on, didn't it, one of his solo records? Um, but you know, you're right, there were so many songs that they probably put the vast majority of them on, but I'm sure, as you say, there's some of the stuff that went on to Abbey Road and Let It Be was, was kind of kicking about at that point as well. Um, there were a couple of things to mention, and then we'll just uh, hopefully tick it and move on. Uh, you know, mass, massive seller, of course, don't need to really talk about that. Um, sold 3.3 million in the US in this first week, which I thought was a bit amazing. We did a little Twitter poll just, uh, just last week or two weeks ago. Because I think there's four double albums, I think, in the top 30 of the list at the moment. And we did a chat to say out of the four doubles, what do you make to be the best double? Um, and I actually thought this would have been the best double, but it wasn't. So London Calling got voted Wait. slightly ahead of it, albeit it was, it was pretty that's just what the poll said, Ian. I'm just feeding it back, mate. So it was um, it was London Calling, uh-huh. it was Exile, and it was Songs of Key Life. And um, you see, you see that. I can yep. see that. Yeah, <laughs> I got that, mate. See my That looks like um, the Geddy Lee there, is it, John? Is that the Rush guy? No, no, no. Um, yeah, so yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> you know, it's it's an amazing record. That they, they are that they are beyond them. Um, probably beyond categorization. Really, kind of just about everything we've listened to since then's got its basis around the Beatles and one without revisit them again over the next. Um, few episodes. Yep. Um, one other PS2 it was, of course, um, which is one of my favourite songs on the record, um, Obladi Obladah, yep. uh, was, get this right now, was it the f- first record that a Scottish band had a UK number one with? That's right. Marmalade. Yep. So, mm-hmm. Which I always, always, also, love, always love it for it's that. A, it's also, um, it, that song reminds me of my childhood. My mum used to sing it to me in the kitchen when I was about three. I always remember dancing away with my mum that song. Yeah, so that, that's, well, that song's got a special, special place for me. Yeah, we don't have any. Um, we don't have any <clears throat> Beatles solo albums in the hundred at the moment, Ian. Yeah, well, that's nonsensical. I'm just saying, mate. Um, there was one on the list, uh, which was Lennon's um, first solo album. Yeah, McCartney Rams, a masterpiece Ram should be in everybody's top 20. Well, we've voted the Lennon one off, so um, <laughs> just saying. I think we'll blame George and the guys for that one as well, John, right? Since mm. they're not on. I'm not so, going to try and get I am perfectly seated with, with my knowledge of this, you know. I don't need Rolling Stones and a bunch of 23-year-olds in America to tell me what the best albums are. Uh, yeah, I know, mate. I know. Uh, the last but, point but was... This is why you're on, though, so we can influence... We can. We can what, influence the future. What this top 100 is. Yeah. Of course we can, yeah. yeah. Uh, someone did say to me, I, I, I didn't really get this, but I sort of looked at it, but they said they thought birthday was like the start of glam rock. 
Do you get that at all? You know the kind of the, the over no. the top, the shallalage, the sing alongs, the the you know the sort of foot stomping element of it. That kind of you suck rock and roll into something different. Well, I think there's loads of songs in that album that do that. I mean, mm-hmm. they say, you know, Helter Skelter's the start of metal. Get blisters on his fingers, right? So, um, cool. So I think we, we are at another clean sweep again. All the guys that come in, including Graham, um, were, were yeses on the White Album. Uh, Clearly, there's hearing aids in when you listen to that one. Absolutely. He's redeemed mm-hmm. himself. Um, I guess we're all in, are we, John, Ian? Yep. Yes. Yeah, me too, mate. It's, it's a cracking record. Um I think that's the last week clean sweep we get tonight. I think the rest might be a wee bit more interesting. Cool. Okay, so the next one we have um, is D'Angelo with Voodoo at number 28. Okay, so a summary of that is, in the five years following the release of his 1995 debut, Brown Sugar, D'Angelo grew disillusioned with the genre that had him anointed as a rising star. I don't consider myself an R&B artist, the then 26-year-old told the magazine, R&B is pop, that's the new word for R&B. In his quest to create something new, he looked to both the masters of soul, Marvin, Curtis, Stevie, etc., and contemporary innovators, Lauren Hill, Erica Badu, etc. The end result was Voodoo, a moving, inventive masterpiece that stands as the ultimate achievement of the neo-soul era. Crafted with producer and drummer Questlove, who called the LP a vicarious fantasy, Voodoo places Pink Floyd-style cosmic jams next to Prince-inspired erotica. I'm just looking at Voodoo as the beginning. The angel said at the time, it took a while, but I'm on my way now. So that was 28, The Angel of Voodoo, released on the 25th of January 2000, and it's his only album on the list. John, Voodoo, The Angel, what do you think, mate? Yeah, so I'd never heard of this guy. Hands up, never heard of him in my life before, so um, I had no idea what to expect. Um, I did expect some sort of hip-hop album, so it was completely wrong there. Um, but again, and I'll mention it, and I know it sounds like, you know, broken records here, 80 minutes long, too long. Far too long, right? Um, so it's a neo-soul album, which again is a new genre for me, so I'm glad I'm on this trip to a point. I'm learning new artists. I'm learning new genres. Um, we voted in um, We voted in Frank Ocean Yeah, about 50 I albums ago, I think. It's released in the decade that was the barren desert for great albums, the 90s. Um, so I looked into this guy and you, you can think a lot of collaborating Erica Badu, Lauren Hill, Grammy Awards or that kind of stuff. So good. Listen to it. I, I get a lot of Prince in here. Um bit of Q tip. And interestingly, I think Q tip was asked to record in one of the songs and they did, but they didn't they didn't like it, so it got pulled. Um so I, actually as I started listening to it, um Devil's Pie, which I think is the second song, left and right that follows it. Um, which includes Method Man, who we'll talk about in a little while as well. I really liked those songs. Uh, really felt, you know, pretty good. I thought, yeah, I'm, li- I'm liking this album. Textured, a bit layered, a um, little bit of hip-hop, R&B, very Prince. Um, but also maybe looking back to 
you know, I think he's got a lot of influences from, you know, back in the day, the Marvin Gaze of the world and all that kind of stuff. But I just felt after a while, it, it just sounded quite samey. It, it wasn't standing out. Um, and it, I, I thought it started off really, really well. Um, but it just meandered eventually to me and I, I, I just got bored with it. Um, I thought, no, give it give it another listen. And I did, and I gave it a third listen. And I guess my, you know, if you've done economics, my economies of scale were getting less and less with every listen on this, right? Um, I can appreciate it, but it got a bit grating. So not okay. for me. Um, but I think I think he's I looked into him as a person. I, I think there's quite a complex character there as well. You yeah. know, and, and kind of reading about him was um, kind of quite interesting as well uh, in, in many ways. And You know, I, I talk about the, the Prince aspect and there's a song in there, Chicken Grease, which I think Prince used as a kind of technical term for a guitar chord. So, he, you know, he kind of picked up on that. But I, I think I'm not saying he's a prince wannabe, but I, I just it, it didn't do enough for me to warrant, you know, to say this is a, a top 100 album. And I think you look at these these lists, right? I I think you know th- this is really to me. I'm surprised it's so high up on the list. Um, and I bet if they do this, if they do this now or in five years' time, I'd be surprised if this is the top 100. Okay. So it was released okay. um, right at the back end of the decade. Um, it was his second studio album. It was huge at the time and sort of surprisingly huge. It was straight in the US number one, sold 320,000 copies in the first week, 33 weeks in the chart, became an overnight star, etc., etc. But the interesting thing was he didn't then do another album for um thick end of 15 years. Mm. So, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, but it wasn't somebody, it wasn't a Jay-Z guy who then, jumped in and started knocking an album out every other uh, other year. So there is a bit of complexity there. Um, like you, John, I'm a huge Prince fan. And I love that kind of ballady Prince, the kind of soul thing that he does and whatever. But I only love it within the diversity of what Prince does. I couldn't listen to it all the time, you know, and I, I felt similar to you, mate. Um, Ian, what are you thinking, mate? I thought it was shite. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I could... All, could, did, did, hold on, hold on. I, I, you knew D'Angelo or you listened to it for the first yeah, time? I've listened, to, I've listened to a lot of this and I think, you know, I'll take, for example, I would I would stand up and say, I think the Lauren Hill miseducation is a sensation. That's where else my dog decided to run in the door. If you hear That's a okay. part of a Spaniel, apologies. Can I, can uh, I have a vote, Ben? I think, I think Lauren Hill's album's a master. And I think uh, Erica Badu's Baduism album's a tremendous record. Yeah. Both of them are sensational because they are dealing with universal subject matter and the quality of the songs trumps everything else about it. This, to me, is a product of very much style over substance. It's not for me. I think it's for people 30 years younger than me. I don't think it was. he would expect me to leave <clears throat> Uh, but again, I'm looking at this list, and I'm sorry I'm a broken record, but I'm thinking you're bringing out a modern-day soul album 
that you're going to suggest is greater than Al Green's finest work, greater than Curtis Mayfield's finest work, but more damning, you think's a better album than Sign of the Times? Uh, agreed. Times is 22 places lower than this in the chart. Sign of the Times is a universal album of, you know, spirituality, love, failure, regret, depression. It's an opus. It would stand up against most modern albums and leaves this D'Angelo record standing. But for some reason, a pocket of people champion it. And I don't think they're championing the quality of the music. I think they're championing what it stands for or what it and I think I think some seems true of Jimi Hendrix. It's about a record which did something rather than a record that stands up. I totally agree you do take this post once. But then we're not going to find some of the records that are scuffing about the top ten are going to be there either because they've had their time in the sun. This is not a record we're going to look back on the way you might look back in Curtis Mayfield's debut album and think, wow, that's a mm. beauty. Mm. But no, I think with you, it's tedious. It's, it's like watching paint dry. Uh, it's it's got interesting layers and textures, and it feels quite, you know, it's very well produced and it's very well thought out, but I couldn't give a flying fuck about any of it. Perfect. Sorry. That's perfect. That's why you're on for me. Yep. I, I think Spot the intro, I, I, I probably, I would, maybe wouldn't use the same summary, but I would I would pretty much concur with all of what you've said. And John, the interesting thing for me is that he, he puts so much, appears to put so much um, credence into the fact that he was using all the soul greats as his kind of, he called it Yoda, you know, that he, he had it all on. He was watching mm. Soul Train episodes on repeat. Um, while he was, you know, recording and stuff like that, but I don't feel any of that coming through at all. No. It just, just feels like I none, none of the, the sass <clears throat> of Al Green, it's got none of the passion of Marvin Gaye, and it's got none of the proper edge of Curtis Mayfield. It's just not there. Yeah. It yeah. feels like it's been. Des- I mean, I reckon if you got a chatbot robot to write uh, an R&B album, they'd write. Yeah, I get that. And interestingly, of course, it was recorded at Electric Lady Studios. Yeah. <laughs> so back yeah, to yeah. the only right. person yeah. who didn't yeah. record yeah. there was Hendrix. So, um, yeah, yeah I think we... it's, you know, it does reference, you know, Al Green, Marvin Gaye, James Brown, Sly and the Family Stone, Hendrix as well, right? Um, and, you know, they talk about the way it's been recorded and stuff like that, but that's all great, but you've got to have the tunes. You've Agreed. got to have the two, you know, it's like saying, you know, I've got this influence, that influence, but you've got to deliver on it. And this does not deliver to the point that, you know, you are saying these are greats and I want to be a great, you know, I think it's 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 a bit style over substance for me. It reminded me, and I don't know how I got to this point, but it reminded me of listening to Toto. I was Africa. listening to Toto, right? I think I you get. Think I think you, you get my point, in right? That you know, Toto were, were very popular, weren't they? You know, and that's fine if people like Toto. But you know, every time I ever heard them on Steve Wright in the afternoon or whatever it was, I I just zoned out all the time. I was like, can't I can't even stay with it for a song, never mind an album. So, reminds me quite a lot of that. Um, I think you know we'll call it. And the the guys, 
were all the opposite of the other two that um, they either didn't know the album, a couple of guys are quite honest to say don't know it, which probably tells you something in itself, or the guys that knew it didn't like it, with the exception of Josh Patterson, who voted it in as what a... Is, what does he know? Well, what, right. what I was going to say, George will have, he'll have a right of reply at some point, mate, but what I was going to say is, you know, George takes somebody at uh, the Twitter polls that we do when they don't agree with what George thinks, and um, on this poll, 93%, um, said this wasn't one of the greatest albums, which means only 7% agree with the great man. So mm-hmm. we'll see what he makes of that one. Can, can I just make a PS to this before we vote it no and move it on? I, I guess there's probably a talented guy in here. Um, and interestingly, I did pick up on YouTube that when Prince died, I think it was two or three days after that, he went on the Jimmy Fallon show and played um, Sometimes It Snows in April, uh, just on the piano. And it's it's fantastic. It's because that's a good song. I get that. I, I I get that. But you know, he could have stuck a big band behind it and done done yep. the same stuff. And he didn't. And he just he sings it. I think there's a Ed Sheeran and the Jimmy Fallon show with a piano doing sometimes it snows in April. It'd be brilliant because it's a brilliant song. No, I'm, I'm drawing a line on that, mate. Come on. Right. So we're um we're we're, we're um, moving on. So I don't think um D'Angelo cuts the mustard as they say with us um one up from that here from screen for a second and be back in two secs no just problem keep, keep amongst me no problem i'll just do a review for 27 while we're there and ian's going to lead the review as well so uh 27 uh, on the list is the wu-tang clang enter the wu-tang brackets 36 chambers close brackets Okay, so I had some fun with this one. So the first Wu-Tang Clan album launched rap's most dominant franchise by inventing a new sound built around a hectic uh, panoply of voices and spare raw beats. As ye, the group's sonic mastermind, constructed the Wu's homemade world, he said, from a mix of Eastern philosophy picked up from Kung Fu movies, watered down Nation of Islam preaching, picked up on the New York streets and comic books. <coughs> On Cream, Protect Your Neck, and the non-metaphorical Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with. RZA's offbeat samples, fellow New York um, Barbara Streisand, uh, Thelonious Monk and the Dramatics, created a ground, uh, create a grounding for the group's nine members. And Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg had established LA as a centre of hip-hop innovation and daring, but the Wu reclaimed the crown for the music's birthplace. I was just reading the summary from Rolling Stone, and I like to come in. It was released on 9th of November, 1993, it was their debut album at the time. Dean, you're leading us on this one. I'm looking forward to this. Takes deep breath. So I really don't like this record. I really don't like the Wu-Tang Clan. I really dislike huge sections of the hip-hop scene. Uh, I can't abide, and I'm I'm sorry, the W in Wu-Tang is meant to stand fucking misogyny uh, and this album is full of it it's full of uh, violent references it's full of everything that makes my stomach churn the way watching russell brand's comedy always made my stomach churn uh i'm going to sound like somebody who doesn't have a love for hip-hop and that's not true i would say that singly the greatest live performance i've ever seen in my life was public enemy at reading in 92 and I think Chuck D and Flavor Flav are two people who universally had a message of positivity and 
you know, political relevance that dramatically changed the landscape in America. And I think bands like the Wu-Tang Clan took the landscape back into the gutter. I don't find it musically challenging. I know you recently had The Chronic on, and there was a bit of a debate about the merits of that. And I think the only merits of The Chronic are that it's beautifully produced. I think Dre's production in that's sensational. Mm-hmm. You could strip out all the all the singing is irrelevant. Uh, and I listened to the Wu-Tang Clan album today and I felt sick from the minute it started to the minute it finished. It grates on me. Uh, it's nowhere near as good a record as the first four Public Enemy albums. I'd hold the first couple of Run DMC albums as being better. And it's not that I Killer and a few of the Ice-T albums are really great, but what I can't be doing with is the marketing of and I don't find it comic book, I find it juvenile uh, juvenile violence, juvenile misogyny so I can't bring myself to like it, I can't bring myself to be inspired by it I can't bring myself to feel anything other than generally contempt I so, really, really dislike this record. So the guys, just picking up on what you've said there, so the guys who talk about being influenced by this are people like Nas, Notorious yep. B.I.G., Jay-Z. Okay, yeah, yep. none of them excite me. So they that, all fall so, the same bracket. Correct. So you're, for you, they're going down the same alley then, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I, I look at, you know, so I, I take something like, I watched the documentary that was on a about the creation of Beats a few months back, the Jimmy Iovine, Dr. Dre documentary. And I watched that and thought, Christ, you're a really interesting guy. You seem very reasonable. I'm going to go back and reassess whether or not my view of post-public enemy hip-hop is shit. So I buy a copy of The Chronic. I think this sounds great. And within 10 minutes, I'm going, I don't want to listen to this. I, I don't think... And music shouldn't necessarily set an example by which you should live by. Because nothing that you know, Bowie or Hendrix lifestyle that they were adopting, you approach or or recommending a certain section of behaviour. And the punk movement was all about rebelling against the status quo. But all the great movements are ultimately, to some extent, spiritually progressive. And so much of successful hip-hop seems to be spiritually regressive. It seems to be about belittling people about violence, and it's so horrifically misogynistic. It just, I, I just can't take to it. Uh, I, I and and I think this is ground zero of that cesspit, and all, all the notorious B.I.G. stuff that followed, the Nas stuff that follows, huge amounts of the L.A. scene that responded to it, Tupac, all of that, just stick it in the bin. Really don't okay. enjoy it, but you give me it takes a nation of millions to hold us back, and I will listen to it from now until the end of time. Globally, show exactly the same first two run DNC albums, magnificent records. But they were saying something, they were doing something that was inspiring. I don't find yeah. Wu Tang quite inspiring. Okay, mate, thank you. We do get public enemy, I think, um, coming up the track a little bit, uh, one or two others as well, but um. um Thanks for that. Um, John? Well, how did you follow that? Um, you, you loved it, didn't you? That, 
Well, I did. <laughs> Good. What Ian said may need, well, not may, it will need me to look at this again because I, I, I rarely get into lyrics. So <laughs> if there is misogyny and all that kind of stuff going on here, and no reason to doubt that, um, that would that would make me revisit my view here. But musically, I love this album. So I, I just play stuff in the background, right? And I've been for years. There's certain songs, the lyrics hit me. Um, this hasn't. Cause I'm, I listen to stuff, and it's not a. It's the music for me. It's it's not a primary thing um, about the lyrics. And I was looking at on Spotify, um, and you know we've we've talked about this in other albums. It, it becomes really really apparent. Um, you've got that e. On Spotify mm-hmm. explicit. Um, now there's only one song has that in this album. So I'm thinking, okay, that's that's not what I was expecting, right? Um, so therefore, I, I kind of zoned out a little bit mm. for lyrics. So I'm going to need to revisit that. Um, but it's not I, just actually, very quickly. It's not just a lyrical point yeah. for me, though. It's a lifestyle point that, that when you see them. And they presented themselves. They were ground zero for that bitches and hoes attitude about rap music. Right. Okay. You know with me, I can't think of a thing that Chuck D ever did or said that would make me ashamed of him. I can't think I, of I, a thing I, that Snoop Dogg's ever done that would make me proud of him. Mm-hmm. Well, I've said on this um, podcast quite often, Public Enemy are the number one hip-hop band in my life, always have been, um, always will be. So they need a place in this top 100. Um, I'm not, I don't know the band overly well, um, but I, I do like this. Uh, well, at the moment I do. I may need to revisit that. So, but I, I, I really enjoyed it um, musically. As I say, I'll, I'll need to go and have a look back on that. I, I, you know, I, I felt it's quite again some. You know, the, the samples were quite interesting. Um, some of the stuff that was going on there, you know, it was a mix of film and music, which you don't always get, um, which I quite liked. And um, yeah, so I, that's left me in a bit of state of flux after <laughs> that. So. Um, Okay. Yeah. Well, so we've had I'm, this. I'm sure that, well, well, I, I tell you, I, I will, I will vote it in based on what was coming into, but I will revisit it. We will revisit it. And we've had mm. a, a wee bit of jazz. We've had a bit of a you know love hate <laughs> discussion. Yeah. Sorry. 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 One thing I will say as well, we we also have had that discussion around the person versus the music. We have around you know so so that, that that's a. I guess a bit of blind spot for me about you know what Ian's saying about what their their views are and and you know the persona. I guess that you know I just don't know that are, blind spots are are personal, and the blind spots mm-hmm. that I might have will be completely different to yours because I could say mm-hmm. now until the end of time saying that I think Morrissey's Vauxhall and I is one of the greatest records ever made, and I don't care if he's a right wing nut job, mm. but. I can tolerate and can decide to ignore Morrissey's right-wing nuttery 
as being the ramblings of a sad, lonely 60-year-old man who doesn't get enough action. I don't I think he wants for action, yeah, man, I, <laughs> I think he secretly wants it. But I was a Smiths fan growing up, so I'm able to forgive him what he's become to an extent and look at the music objectively. I was a public enemy fan when I first got came in contact with them. I fell out of hip hop, fell out of love with hip hop because of this glamorization of you know violence, because of the bitches and holes and all this kind of chat. So when you put a record on and the first couple of words of it are, you know, are are, are record are, are you know bringing you back to that, what it does in me is make me glad mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and we, we've had that chat on podcasts before, haven't we? Um, I can't remember, was it NWA or something like that? No, it was, or, yep. Um, and I made the point that, you know, it's just a litany of abuse and it, it just grates um, to the point. So, that, as I say, this to me this was different. When I looked at the songs, I thought, there's only one here with expletives. I think, you know, I'm saying, you know, God, I'm not saying like some evangelical minister, oh, you can't swear and all that sort of stuff. But it was song after song after song after song. Whereas this album doesn't have that. And that's, to me, that that was the difference. But I, I don't know enough about the backstory of the band. Yeah. And all the... All but, the again, produce- but again, it's that divide about the songs versus the, the persona, the attitude, the people. Yeah, I'm strongly in the camp that the songs trump the person in all walks of life. If we're going to have an issue with people, then let's chuck out Bowie's entire catalogue because clearly he was up to no good in the 60s and 70s. So I think you have to separate it. If separation from a forgiveness point of view, I can completely relate to, but this is about an acceptance point, and all I'm saying is, I'm not suggesting you shouldn't like the <clears throat> clan because I'm sure they all love their mums, and I'm sure those that are married are probably very nice to their wives. But the whole movement around it just turns my stomach in the mm-hmm. same way as you know, death, they're ever going to listen to it because I can't get past what it sounds like initially. The, the door is closed to me in a way that Chuck D opened the door, these guys have slammed it shut and said, it's not for you. So are you saying then the lyrics on this album are out of order or is it more about the band's I've, lifestyle? I lyrically what half the songs were about. What right. I'm saying is that the minute I turn on an album and the first five words of it are the N-word and then I've heard bitch 19 times in the next two songs, I'm like, I don't really, this, this doesn't speak to me. You know, I don't expect a guy growing up in Harlem in 2010 to connect to this charming man by the Smiths. So, well, I, I, I think in that point, me, I, think, I just can't get past it. Yeah, I, I, I think to the point on that and versus the, the previous podcast we talked about NWA, I think this is night and day of a difference. I think NWA when that I've been listening to that album. I didn't hear that enough for it. Uh, I'm not saying I didn't hear it, um, but it, it was it, it was not a feature for me that, that was really pulling through. So 
No, I'm, I'm going to stick to my initial thoughts. Isn't it? I'm, You're right. Don't listen to me. I'm, I'm voting this in. Well, that's why we're yeah. here, mate. No. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it's, it's a good chat. Yeah, that's why we're here. We have all, we genuinely yeah. have all recalibrated various thoughts and opinions after um, chatting about stuff, both voting things in and certainly voting things out that, that we probably would have done before. I was just going to ask, did the, the Kung Fu thing not sway you all? A bit of Bruce Lee referencing and stuff? Is that... If I was a fan of Kung Fu, it might have done. I was <laughs> no disrespect to Bruce Lee, but I don't remember yeah. watching Monkey, if you remember Monkey. Of course, in the yeah. Years, that was as close as I got to watching any Kung Fu. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that my sort of my summary of all of that is for me is exactly what you're saying. I, I, I'm uncomfortable with rap only because there's not a lot of humour in it or hip hop. I like the stuff that's either humorous or is kind of socially challenging or whatever you want to call that. And, and this for me doesn't really have either of those. I do think there is a big cultural disconnect, you know, between us and what those guys are going through in Harlem or wherever it might be. So I don't think we can fix that, can we? But we can only call it as we see it. I did the, the thing I laughed at was that when they did the album cover, <clears throat> I think there was eight rappers, wasn't there, in the band? They did the album cover. There was only six of them on the cover because two of them are in jail. Um, so, that's, yeah. that's why yeah. they wore the hoods <clears throat> and stuff, so they didn't. They couldn't tell who was there and whatever, so, which I guess tells I think, you. I think you're, 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 I, I, I do take um, issue with your point. There's no... Humour and hip hop. No, no, and that's Brian would say what he doesn't connect to is the hip hop that doesn't have humour. That's correct. Yeah, humour in public enemy yep. in DMC. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's no hip hop in Goldie looking chain though. <laughs> <laughs> We've had that chat as well. I know we have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so listen, every day was a no. Everybody was a no on that. A couple of guys didn't know it, to be fair, but the ones who did were a no. And I'm, um, John, you're going to stick to your yes for a moment? Yeah, I'm sticking to yes. For posterity? Yeah. Ian, you're, you're I, a... I, I think it's I, I think it's a really good album. So, yeah. I'm going again with more open ears. Yeah. Um, and I'm probably somewhere in the middle, to be honest. Ian, you're a no for sure, yeah? <coughs> I would um, say so. there's better hip-hop albums than this by a distance. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably neutral on it. I didn't, didn't dislike it, but... Um, but again, would I put it in top 100 albums? No, certainly I don't think I would. So it's probably more leaning towards... I think the, there are better pop albums, but they, they should be in here as well. But and, I think this is a decent album. And they may well be, I guess. We, we pick up a couple mm. other ones up the list as well, So as well as um, Poppy Enemy. But whether they are good enough or not, we'll find out, I, sh I think. Um, okay, we've got one to go, um, which is number 26 on the list, which is Patty Smith and Horses. Okay, um, from its first defiant line, quote, Jesus died for somebody's sins but not mine. The opening shot in a bold reinvention of Van Morrison's garage rock classic Gloria, Patti Smith's debut album was a declaration of mutiny, a statement of faith in the transfigurative powers of rock and roll. Morrison made her the queen of punk, uh, brackets her CBGB buddy Tom Villain of television co-wrote the Jim Morrison tribute breakup, but Smith cared more for the poetry and rock. She sought the visions and passions that connected the likes of Richards with Rimbaud and found them with the intuitive assistance of a killer band and her friend Robert Mapplethorpe, who shot the cover portrait. The real thing, Smith said later, was to keep rock and roll in the hands of the people. So that's the last one for tonight. Uh, Patty Smith Horses, released 10th of November 1975. John, take us home, mate. Yeah, um... I think this is this is definitely an album that's worth its place in the top one hundred. Um, I don't 
think it's an easier listen. Uh, I, I would have to say that. Um, I'd probably say something that's, you know, maybe a little bit stupid, but I think you've got to be in the right mood to listen to that, this album. You can say that about any album, I guess, but I think so, more so with some albums than others, and I think this is this is an example of that. We're talking about Van Morrison earlier, and um, I'm not a fan of Van Morrison. Gloria, star, you know, is, is just fantastic. It just builds and it builds. Um, really, really good. Uh, you know, song to start with. Um, there's a lot of spoken word going on here as well. And I think that's, you know, if, if you've read a bit about Patty Smith and I have, um, there's a, a great book called The Downtown Pop Underground, which covers New York, um, the new. Patty Smith features in this heavily um, around, you know, when, when she first comes to New York. She's sleeping in park benches, nowhere to, you know, stay. She meets, you know, you mentioned Robert Maplethorpe, meets him. Um, they head it off and, and obviously he takes a photograph, you know, for the album cover. Um, she's doing theatre and off, off Broadway uh, and then meets, you know, Sam Shepard, Lenny Kay. Lenny Kay, you know, it's like, let's, Go and play some music, you know, to your to your poetry, um, and you know the 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 Patti Smith band also pretty much came about by accident, and um, you know she's then playing the likes of CBGBs, getting a bit of interest, album deal with Arista, which you know came came out with this, and then you know she went on to you know bigger bigger things, um, but I, I think it's. It's not an easy listen of an album, but I think, you know, we, we talked about probably in the first album on Jimi Hendrix about influences. And I think, you know, you look at this and, you know, that 1975, 76, it's kind of year zero for punk rock, right? This is, this is it's not an out and out punk rock album, but it's, it, it's, it's got the root. five months later, they were playing CBGBs. They're all in that scene. Tom Verlaine for um, television played with Patti Smith. Um, you can see all the influences going on, even, you know, beyond, before this early 70s, she was playing with New York Dolls, supporting the New York Dolls. You know, we talk about MC5, Iggy, New York Dolls being that sort of prototype punk bands before it before it happened, and then, you know, into England with the Clash and the Pistols and the Damned. Um, they were all soundtracking this album. Mick Jones talks about it a lot. Um, so, I, 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 you know, it's just a really, really good album. And I think you look at a poetry, which was a real thing um, to start off with, and, you know, in theatre and um, all that kind of stuff. Um, there's a lot of that in this album. And, you know, I think it's it's really quite interesting. Um, there's a lot going on. And I think, and also the good thing about an album like this is you can listen to it, play it again a week later or a day later, you'll pick up different things. And it, if you can do that with an album, to me, that gives you, 
it, it just gives an album just a, an added element, mm-hmm. really. So, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, I, I think it's fantastic. Um, but not an easy listen. It's, um, you've got to be in the right mood for it for me. Okay. So it was a debut studio album. It was produced by John Cale. And then there's the stories, right. of course, that they didn't get on, um, which I guess may or may not have helped with the with the making of the record because it does sound quite a sort of fractious record generally doesn't it um which you know that we can come back to uh there's the Jimi hendrix connections because i think her first single was hey joe wasn't it before um before she did the album which is but then isn't on the album so um yeah okay ian what's your take mate uh, it's a masterpiece and i find it an incredibly easy listen uh but it's just you go that's the joy of it I could put it on at any point of any day and it just feels like a, a familiar friend. Uh, to me, yeah, it is the, the kind of ground zero to some extent of punk, but it also feels to me to be a continuance of what was happening underground in lots of places. It's To me, it's always sounded like probably this being the most awkward they could be but there's, there's huge chunks of Leonard Cohen in there for me as well. Hmm. And, you know, the number of albums nowadays, if you were to go and listen to the birthday party, the entire Nick Cave, entire Nick Cave catalogue, uh, huge amounts of The Clash, huge chunks of Talking Heads, definitely that whole new wave movement, magazine, television, everything in there. Another band we're doing. Uh, Sensational front women, <clears throat> songwriter, brilliant chooser of cover versions. Uh, I'd probably say that I maybe prefer Easter as an album, bizarrely. Uh, but that's probably a production thing because that's Jimmy Iovine and he's doing a really great job of keeping it all tight. And Kale probably was a fractious prick in 1975. I can't imagine it would have been an easy job. Uh, but yeah, nothing about it feels anything other than really familiar. But it's right in the sweet spot of what I love in music, you know. It's it's a great record. I think it's a better record than 25th, uh, but it's a great record. Okay. Well, we are getting towards the top end. Um, and she she was kicking about for a while, obviously, wasn't she? So it was interesting that, that, that when this broke through, I, I don't know whether she did help to create the punk feel or whether she was just in the right time or not, I, I don't don't really know. And it's, we've said this quite a lot with some artists, haven't they, that were they lucky or did they sort of create their own luck? And what, what's your thoughts I, on Smith? I think, she, I think she created their own work. I mean, she, right. I think she moved She moved in 67, right? Um, I think Virginia or someplace like that, she moved to New York. And, a lot, you know, like a lot of bands, artists go to New York over here, the the levitate to London, right? Um so eight years before the but she's in that off off Broadway thing where you know it's 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 the the freaks, shall we say, of the world. And that's that's in that book. Um mm. you know it's 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 the people that are under you know the underground people they're doing stuff that they're artists are culturally aware that they're picking up on things. You know, she she worked with like say Gerard Malanga that, that was in with Warhol, right? But she didn't she wasn't into the Warhol thing, whereas you know Robert Maple thought 
you know, was to a point, but she's obviously got John Cale in there as well, but she nailed up a little bit against the Warhol thing. Um, and she, you know, she worked with a guy called Sam Shepard, right? And they, they produced a, a play called Cowboy, Cowboy Mouth. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that's where, it is. you know, it is, right, okay. Um, and that play, which I'm going off on a, a tangent again, but that play, its premiere was in Edinburgh at the Traverse Theatre in 1971, right? And then a fortnight later, it was in New York or someplace like that. Um, so, I, you know, just wee snippets like that, I just think, you know, are, are really, really interesting. But I think, you know, she's hanging about playing with New York Dolls um, and it, it was very much them television, Blondie as well. You know, I can hear almost, you know, bits of Blondie took ages to actually mm. be successful. They were, you know, losing members left, right and centre of the band and eventually, you know, it took off. But, you know, you, you can hear, I can hear influences that Patti Smith has given that Debbie Harry's picked up on, mm. um, you know, because all in that scene, you know, Ian mentioned Talking Heads, all these other bands um, that are around in that, that time, really, you know, it was a, a small set of people, but my God, what an influential bunch they were. They've all went either, you know, played in bands, became journalists, whatever, and really influenced what then became punk. Yeah. As a bit of a side issue, she almost joined Blue Oyster Cult as a singer. Because yeah, but she feared the Reaper. She couldn't. She couldn't. Touche, <laughs> mate. Touche. Yeah, she had a relationship, didn't she, with uh, one of the guys in that? Um, cool. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, big fan of the record. It's a fantastic record. Um, seems to be a bit of a kind of crossroads junction or whatever you want to call that for so many jumping off points over the, the kind of years that follow that. And we talk about influence quite a lot on these records and a is, a, is a really good record, but B, the influence of it, I think is pretty significant, which um, I think the two together will go for a lot. Guy, reading up people like um, Viv Albertine from, um, she said the record changed her life, literally. Um, Michael Stipe said, quote, get this right, the album tore his limbs off and put them back in a different order, unquote. And he ended up, they recorded, I think, Ian, didn't they? Somewhere down the line. Patty Smith and... Uh, new Vincent High Five. He bought the letter. The yeah, yeah. Um, so a whole bunch of stuff. Big Smiths, um, Morrissey, Marr thing, which again we're all sort of fans of that. So you can see, you know, all the all the things that connect there. So it was proper crossroads. Mm-hmm. Also, like the fact that she played the last gig at CBGBs before it was shut mm-hmm. in two thousand six, I think that was. So kind of nice way to get closure on that. Um, and one of my favourite bands tells a great story about her, about the Waterboys. So he basically, he wrote her a letter or something like that, saying, um, I'd love to come see you, they were playing the Rainbow in London, weren't they? So he wrote to her and she says, just come down, I'll get you in. So Mike's got my way down and got her in and got him in and um, he wrote a song about her and all that kind of stuff. So there's there's kind of lots of things coming back, to certainly to me here, that, that makes me a fan of this. I have had a copy of the record and I've also not had a copy for quite a while, so I had to um, to go and dig out my CD when I was doing this and, and listen to it again, but, but I loved it. So 
it's sort of back on my my love list for sure. Um, the guys were, um, yes, 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 yes. No, the only no was Chris Thompson. So um, we'll be having words with Chris about that. And Graham, Graham's still listening again, Ian, so we're, we're fine with that, mate. We're fine. And one last question before we, we kind of sign off, because that, that puts it, and I'm assuming all three of us are a yes for that. I'm an absolute yeah. yes, stick on. Yeah, me too, mate. And it might one of the things we do, Ian, is we are going to get a chance to re-vote or sorry, re um re categorise all of these albums into a new hundred. So I'd imagine I remember speaking about Hunky Dory some time ago, which was like eighty or something like that, and we said, you know, we just didn't agree with that. So I think I think there'll be things that will go up and down on the list as well as being on the list itself. So I think uh, horses probably nudge up a little bit. I was going to ask you just interestingly, if we do this now and again. 75 wasn't it came out so how do we look at the nme's top three albums of 75 yep. want to have a jump on that you want to tell you what i think they are yeah 75 75 nme's top three albums correct Jesus so they kind of critics choice stuff you know john you're always good at this mate on it then Great guess. Uh, it's in there. It's not in the top three. One artist has got two in the oh. top three. Barry. Yes, no. 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 Bob Marley. Um, Bob Marley. Wow. Yeah. Frozen. Bob, you back on? Are you, are you just waiting for that? What's he got? Sorry, back mate. on, I were good. Um, Bob Marley's got two on there. He's got, um, uh, he's got Mar Marley Live. Neil Young. I'm frozen a wee bit there. Um, Bob Marley. So we get Marley Live. Bob Marley's and, one and two. Uh, yeah, one and two. Yep. Never. Marley Live and Natty Dread. Yeah. Um, sorry, number one was um, Blood in the Tracks. Uh, yeah, well, I see, I'd, I, if I'd time to think of it, I'd have blood in the tracks in there. But I was thinking NME would have been British albums. Yeah. And I couldn't think of anything significant from 75. They were culturally quite, 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 quite ahead of their time, were they? They you know, just didn't get to punk before it was all British <coughs> stuff with John Peel yeah. and all that. Um, cool. And uh, the other thing was, uh, I read the book a long time ago, the Just Kids book. Somebody got me for a Christmas present or something like that, which again, I, I sort of remembered that I really enjoyed at the time. So. If anybody's not read that, it's, it's worth reading. And also, didn't genuinely didn't know this that her son married um, Meg White from the White Stripes. Is that a thing? Did everybody know that? I was aware of that. Yeah, sorry. I can't oh, tell yeah, whether your dramatic pauses or freezes or not, Brian. So I'm, I, I'm not sure whether the screen's going or you're just dramatically pausing. No, I think it's about both, mate. Okay, so um, we'll, we'll, right. we'll, we'll try and cut to the chase then. So that's just done all five. So we've got Hendrix in, Beatles in, D'Angelo in, Wu-Tang Clang out, and Patti Smith in. Oh, sorry, D'Angelo out, sorry, apologies. Um, three out of the five. I need to re-work with that number. That's 48, I think, isn't it? Out of 75. Cool. I'll, I'll update that. So, okay, good fun, that. Thank you. Um, before we finish, uh, all our guests get the chance to nominate an album for us to consider to add to the list. And Mr. Smith... It's um, it's your turn now. So, what you're nominating and why? Okay, so I started this when I started the White Album by saying any lover of contemporary popular music should have the first four albums as the best ever as Beatles albums. I will now caveat that. 
any love, the album should have two records, one and two in the world, for they are the first two albums ever to have been recorded by anyone, ever. And depending the mood you're in, you could take the Sunshine album or you could take the Rainy Night album, and I'm going to jump in the Sunshine album of Songs for Swinging Lovers by Frank Sinatra as singly the greatest recorded work the world has ever seen. And I would say In the Wee Small Hours by Frank Sinatra is the second greatest recorded work the world has ever seen. Songs for Swinging Lovers, you've got Sinatra goes in, so if you don't know your history of music, albums never existed before this. Albums were simply collections of EPs. You'd do three or four songs, you'd combine them in a 12-inch record and fire them out, and Sinatra said, no, no more. We are going home. And he goes into a studio with Nelson Riddle at the peak of his powers with the best big band that's ever been assembled and takes the Great American Songbook and delivers the best versions of the best songs from the greatest songbook in the world. I mean, Christ, you've got How About You, you've got I've Got You Under My Skin, you've got Pennies in Heaven, you've got Making Whoopi, It Happened in Monterey. It's just an impeccable 14 tracks of brilliant songwriting, brilliant musicianship, brilliant composition, sensational performance, Talked by sensational performance, taught by sensational performance. It's without peer, the greatest thing ever recorded. Wow. Uh, I'm so pleased you put that forward. Genuinely am. Um, I actually have one of those two albums on my list that I'm going to be putting on. Um, I was going to be putting on for consideration. So. So we'll add that into the list, and uh, both of them are fantastic. If anyone hasn't heard them for whatever reason, go and, go and listen to them, because they're wonderful. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, for the next podcast, we will be reviewing... Ian, I'll give you a free hit on these, mate. You will get the chance to have a vote anyway, but since you're, you're on camera... Yeah. Okay. So next five are Carol King Tapestry. Uh, Miles Better Than 24, one of the best records ever made. Thank you. Beatles, Sgt. Peppers. Uh, Miles Better Than 23, one of the best records ever made. <laughs> Velvet Underground and Nico. Uh, the worst Velvet Underground album, but still absolutely sensational, and Miles Better Than most of the albums after it. <laughs> Notorious B.I.G., Ready to Die. Piece of shite. Get it to hell. Get it in the bin. And, Final, and to finish, um, Springsteen, Born to Run. Oh, masterpiece. Springsteen's second best album, but still an absolute stormer. Uh, this is best then, Ian. Albums the Edge of Town. Which yep. we voted out. What? You voted Darkness in the Edge of Town out? It was on the list and I championed it and we are a democratic <laughs> podcast and I was voted out. Jesus Christ. Mate, heartbreaking. Springsteen's best record. I know. Well, maybe get back on. We've all got a chance to put albums back on, so maybe yeah. we'll, we'll get uh, to that. I think all of them. I mean, I think, uh, honestly, Carol King is the greatest album that a female's ever produced, in my opinion. Love it. Yeah. Should be should be top 10 in anyone's list. Uh, every Velvet Underground album masterpiece, everyone. I'm more of a fan of Loaded. I'd rather listen to the melodic pop songs of Lou Reed. Yeah. 
and the scratchy anger of him. But Christ Almighty, what an impact. Agreed. Agreed. And then the big fat guy. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even on the next one. I'm a, because I'm, I'm, I think I'm at the football match, so I'm gutted I'm missing the Velvet Underground and Nico album. We're actually hoping there could be a first in the next one. We might have two, <coughs> guests, two guests on one episode. Yeah. So, um, which should be good fun. Apologies, mm. I know the technology's been a wee bit flaky tonight, so I'm not sure where that sits, but um, thanks for persevering, guys. Really appreciate it. Ian, thanks again for your time, mate. Pleasure. We'll see you both soon. We will, John, yeah. as ever. Thank you. And uh, guys, a yeah, um, couple of things just to finish. Um, the, the last song on the Patti Smith album is about Jimi Hendrix, so that's a good bookend. We started with Hendrix, you almost finished with Hendrix. And the book I was talking about, that's it here, guys. Okay. The downtown pop underground. Okay. Yeah. Worth it. it. Um, if you want it, I'll give you it next time. Yeah, love that. Absolutely, and I will. Yeah. Put, I'll stick it on Twitter as well when we um, we get the album reviews out. Okay. Are you there next Friday? Um, what's on? Straven. Yes, I am. Yeah, for the bluebells and stuff. Yeah. Well, I'll bring it then if you want it. Perfect. Guys, thank okay. you very much for your time. Always a pleasure. Pleasure. And we'll catch Take you soon. Care, See you later. Thanks, guys. Bye. 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 Bye.